0: We often say on our side, like sleep exists at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. If you can't sleep, it's a basic human need. You have to solve that problem, but it's also at the top in terms of that good to great exactly. And there's two very different customer segments you're going after.
1: You have to work so hard on yourself, so much on yourself to create an opposing force versus this like gravity size. Like influence, like forces that push you towards unhealthy food wherever you go. It's like I can't have to go supermarkets, unhealthy habits, alcohol, uh, TV, news. So that whole environment where like an individual of twenty first century is living in, it makes it almost impossible <laughs> to build healthy habits on a day to day map.
2: As a designer by training, I have some some biases here as well, and I think that what really excites me here is is that opportunity to make. Positive Habits Sexy.
3: Hello and welcome to another episode of Shine a podcast by Star. And today we're talking about how digital therapeutics can enable new business models. To illuminate this topic, we are joined by Patrick Crampton, the Chief Commercial Officer at Cerebra, our very own Chris Scales, a Strategy Director here at Star, and Bozidar Javekovic, who is the CEO at EverMed. And so the question is, First, what is a digital third We start off quite basic, and then we're trying to understand how this new technology is enabling new business models and the respective go-to-market strategies. So with that, we'll jump into the discussion, and the first voice you'll hear will be that of Bozidar. Hi,
1: guys. A pleasure to be here. So, here's uh, Boji. I'm a medical doctor and MBA by training. I'm based in New York, and my experience is within the pharma industry, where I spent 17 uh, years launching products and being in global digital leadership roles, now CEO of a company called Evermet.
3: And Chris. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Real
2: pleasure to be here. I am Chris Scales. I'm the strategy director at STARS Global Health Tech Practice. I've been at STAR for um, four years now. Um, I have a 20 year background in innovation, product strategy, and design. Over the last three to four years, STAR has been becoming increasingly prevalent in the digital therapeutic space. We've been working in this space across our three verticals strategy, design, engineering, developing solutions that treat various conditions such as diabetes care, ADHD, cognitive decline, mental health, ophthalmology. And what's interesting for us is we've seen this through the perspective of various clients. So we've we worked in DTX with insurance companies, but we've also looked at it through the eyes of, the, of pharma, as well as with device manufacturers. So uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking a little bit more about this uh, on this podcast.
3: And Patrick.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Patrick Crampton, Chief Commercial Officer with Cerebra Medical, a medtech startup transforming sleep disorder diagnosis and therapy myself international business background sales and marketing uh, but i've actually spent the last 12 years in a number of startups so i've been with sriber for three years launching products in the clinical diagnostic space uh, then the technology has tremendous possibility in terms of digital therapeutic and so uh, basically working in terms of bringing that technology into that space uh, and having an impact there
3: awesome thank you guys i, I want to start really basic i'm going to ask the question what is a digital therapeutic and alongside that it would be great if we could just have an example chris maybe i can go to you because it seems like you have extensive experience here what how you describe this and can you just share an easy example so it's clear to everyone listening what this actually is
2: a digital therapeutic is basically a digital treatment it's often used uh, to support a a treatment of a specific condition or a disease often this can be uh, in partnership with a, a drug treatment uh, and the digital therapeutic is designed to help to to ensure that the that the treatment program is is adhered to, uh, to ensure that that patients adhere to to the to the program that's been assigned to them. It also enables healthcare professionals to remotely uh, track a patient's adherence to that program and make interventions where necessary. And that's one angle of it. I think uh, you know also um, digital therapeutics has sort of evolved over time and and sort of let's say the scope of the digital therapeutic has expanded and it's moved beyond just supporting drug therapies uh, and also it's moved into things like you know behavioral health um, as well uh, and mental health and so mental health has actually become arguably a really really big space uh, here uh, obviously it's a huge pande- t- pandemic at the moment and yeah it's grown into a number of other conditions and disease areas too.
3: The example you gave there was to like be used alongside traditional medicine yes if digital therapeutics just limited to that or can a therapeutic be issued on its own separate to traditional
2: yeah absolutely i mean we're, we're seeing examples of therapies that are being used to um to treat conditions without the use of medicine as well and and you know you can argue that um, you know things like cognitive uh, behavioral health is one example where digital therapeutic is helping to to train people to drive behavior change. So for example, just simple ways through training, exercises, programs, uh, diet, exercise, uh, helping to manage those things to sort of, you know, improve your overall condition. These are, and ultimately the role of the digital therapeutic is to to support the the patient or the user to change their, their daily behavior right? And this is another way that digital therapeutics are currently being used. So ultimately, one of the key sort of drivers behind digital therapeutics is driving behavior change in human beings.
3: So, Posada, I'm coming over to you because of your background in pharma here. If I'm a pharmaceutical executive and I'm seeing my potential customers being treated by software, not my treatments, like what am I thinking? What am I doing about this?
1: Yeah. So it's a great question. And It's a topic that it's a little bit difficult to understand for, you know, a traditional pharma executive, because there is a really a certain lens through which someone who's been like 20 years in pharma sees the process of improving health, right? Which includes a very long cycle of developing something, which is about 10 years, like going to research and development for one asset, one drug, to very expensive process through uh, difficulties of adjusting the product. Now you have software which is completely different than that. So the development cycle is much shorter, and then the cost is much lower. The commercial potential is there, but also you can tweak the product every day and do A-B tests on a daily basis, right? So it requires you know a different minds and different thinking, and then seeing, okay, so how does this fit into what we are doing? There's more progressive and less progressive way to think about it. So one is, and as Chris mentioned, there is a combination with drugs but there is also standalone. So the first step would be, okay, so how can we combine this with our existing drug business? And that step is, you know, it's less progressive, it's easier to grasp and it's likely to happen. And that can be, and Chris alluded to a little bit, I call that pre-prescription or post-prescription scenario. So is this digital solution fitting well as an engagement tool? to engage patients and educate them around the disease. And then once there is a need for a drug, be there in that conversation, right? Rather than just you know, relying on TV or mass marketing, or it's a post-prescription discussion where actually that digital solution will help with administration and how the drug is used, et cetera. So it can work in both scenarios. It really depends what drug really depends, what disease it is about, it's about. It depends on many factors, but that is likely the first way, a step, for a far easier step to think about it because when you then put the commercial lens and think, okay, so how do we make money off of that? Because you need to do two things, improve patient outcomes and make money. as a business, so you need to do both. So then it's easier to grasp because then you're, okay, maybe this will help me be more competitive with my drug. Maybe I'm more differentiated. Maybe I will prolong the adherence so patients stay longer on the drug. Maybe I'll be able to catch what is called new starts or new patients earlier. It's a pre-prescription scenario. So there are multiple ways that you can go into your forecast and show commercial value to the management. So that's e- easier first step. And get organization a little bit more comfortable with the idea of digital therapeutics because there's a lot of like fear of the unknown. And then a bigger one then is okay, is there an opportunity for pharma to do a standalone, which is you know an idea that can be scary for a lot of executives like what business are we in right why would it be in that business is it something that tech companies should do or startups so that's that's a whole other story and requires almost like uh, building a set of skills set, set of capabilities skills a sort of skunk works within the large company which is more complex but those are kind of the ways that are that can be done in a kind of step-by-step manner having organization become more comfortable in the process
3: awesome so my understanding of the benefits that of a pharma company could through le- leveraging digital therapeutics is without getting into them releasing standalone one is to release a digital therapeutic alongside a traditional drug that may help reporting it may help the amount like the how the person sticks to the program is, is that accurate those two things are correct okay cool now i'd like to move on to other players within the world of healthcare how they may leverage digital therapeutics or, or how they may be thinking about digital therapeutics. So the, the, those that I have on my list right now are the insurers, the providers, and their medtech companies. Patrick, would you like to share other benefits for those stakeholders?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, on the medtech side, I think we see kind of two different aspects. You know, like Chris was mentioning, there's that sort of software as a medical device side of things, more of the you know, behavioral therapy scaling. Often it's you know alternate treatments, not necessarily you know replacing drugs per se, but uh, often you know accessing and scaling access to therapy because there's often just a shortage uh, you know for sleep insomnia. You know, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia is is the classic example. A uh, number of products, you know, pair therapeutics out there, et cetera. But then on the medtech side, I guess you sort of have not necessarily the the pairing with drugs per se, but also the pairing with hardware and sensing tools, diabetes management probably being the classic example, but it all comes down to behavior change at the end and maybe even a question for Bozidar from the pharma side because in sleep, we're discussing and looking at different aspects, even in terms of personalization of the prescription. Sleeping pills is a great example where, you know, many patients could have a lower dose, for example, customization opportunities for that regulatory implications aside you know there, there's another sort of angle to that in terms of that feedback loop when you have sensing materials and providing that there's um, another potential so yeah those that are, I don't know what the farmer view is on that per se but that's another angle to them
1: yeah at, at the end of the day again I come back to two questions I think it's a great point one is is there an improvement in patient outcomes outcome right and then the second one is, is there a business value for that and I think that something like personalization, Definitely has space there and it can help differentiate the drug. So it's good for the business because it can help differentiate. It's good for the patient because it can personalize. Now, there are simple examples of that, which is drugs that need titration and dosing, right? If you have some digital tool that can help patients understand, okay, what dose do I need now? So that could be one. But there are other ways also because, you know, it's not like a one patient with insomnia, different types of insomnia. So then if you have that, you want to plug it with a, or pair it with a different drug you want to do it for the right segment of patients where it, where it makes sense. But definitely we want to get to that, of course, holy grail of precision medicine where, you know, you have personalized treatment for everything. And I think that's the beauty of digital therapies, is that they can really adjust in the same way that Netflix adjusts to what we watch. And all of our homepages here will look different now if you log in, in the same way those uh, digital behavioral change tools can adjust and enhance you have a drug you cannot adjust too much you need a lot of years for that but then you have a software piece which can adjust and now you have a good combination so i think it's a great point
3: can someone share then this issue i've been reading about about insurers either not paying or paying out for digital therapeutics
1: yeah i mean i can share something so Insurers or payers as they're called. I mean, uh, in, in in the US, the term is payers. I mean, in the US it's you have, you know, very complex, diverse payer system. And then you have, you know, Europe, which most of the countries have one payer, right? It's a national insurer. It may have some countries like Switzerland that have, you know, private insurance mark and in the uh, commercial insurance in the US. So it really depends. But if you're talking about the US, there's always a question of does this improve patient outcomes and does, does this also reduce cost, right? And in many of these situations, the first question will be, does it reduce cost? <laughs> so that will be the key. Now, a lot of startups go into uh, into that those conversations with uh, payers and say, well, we're going to help them reduce costs. We're going to have improve outcomes. And then find themselves that they have a killer pitch and a killer shot and a killer slide that shows both and then they don't make the case, right? And the reason is that pairs also have other, like second layer, kind of lens that they look at through things. A, they're looking whether, whether something would work in a broader group of patients, like population health, right? They're not interested in seeing the data that for example, digital therapeutic could work in five percent of most engaged patients—the ones that are super engaged with their health. They're not interested in that. They know that with those patients, you can do a phone. Someone can give them a phone call every two weeks, and you'll get the improvement in outcome. They're they're basically saying, does this work in a large, like broad scale? Because I have like tens of millions of people, and so the question becomes very different. And then the second one is that, as you know, in the U.S., what's really interesting with the design of the insurance is that the changes. So insurance companies in the US don't really have a great incentive for long-term health, right? Because you change your employer, you change your insurance. So you you're non-stop changing your insurance. So I lived in Switzerland for 4 years, it's private insurance, but you take the same insurance to the next employer. So you choose your insurance. So that you know, I will have private insurance pay pay me if I go to the gym right? because they know that long-term it's saving their money. They have a very long-term view. Here, it's a short-term view, population, health, and cost, and outcomes, which makes it really complex for a startup to, to, to know how to design studies that can show all these benefits. Uh, it's doable. I think that COVID definitely exponentially accelerated all these conversations because, behavior has shifted towards using telehealth. So now that patients are more using telehealth, okay, there's way more openness to all these tools. But the bar is really high. What I mentioned on those four criteria, it's, it's really, really hard. Hard. So anyway, I'll, I'll pause here, just to invite some other opinions or comments. I
0: was just going to sort of add, I think that's why we're starting to see, you know, more of these digital therapeutics, at least maybe this is more of a med tech side of things, but starting to really sort of access more of that remote patient monitoring Reimbursement pathway, you know, as another way to sort of get paid for these services. And, you know, it's tapping into the, the telehealth side and and bringing the doctor into that, you know, engagement with the patient or, you know, clinicians, et cetera, it seems to be, you know, at least in the short term, kind of the, the viable path to continue to move this space forward because, you know, I'm with Basadar, the the reimbursement piece in the US is especially complex. And then there's that added side of it of the culture change at the prescriber level. You know, how do you get all those other pieces in place, but then how do you actually get the doctors prescribing, the patients following through, you know, you're not just going to your local drugstore and picking up a digital therapeutic, you have to log in, you have to engage, there's different, different behavioral change things there. So, you know, there's, there's a long, long road to that.
2: Working with the uh, insurance players in in Europe, a big sort of Driver for them is is about prevention, right? So what they're really really interested in is promoting uh, healthier healthier lifestyles, and that's where, for example, mental health is a, is a key component because they're aware they're fully aware that if you have a customer who is mentally fit, it reduces the chances of them getting sick, basically. And so there's a, there's a big interest from 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 the insurers to actually ensure uh, that uh, their customers. Are mentally fit, and ultimately, what that's going to do is that's going to uh, reduce the amount of claims in the long run. So that's the benefit for them. When you look at the benefit for the end consumer or the patient, then it's really about this idea about enabling them to have this sense of empowerment and control over their mental fitness. And I think this is another uh, this is another uh, key component of you know a digital therapeutic. It's again, it's not about working with a with a medicine. It's really about training them to manage their behavior so they ensure that that continuous mental fitness and insurance partners are obviously very very interested in this because obviously the business model in the long term they're going to be uh, you know reduced you know costs when it comes to insurance claims
1: it's worth pursuit i mean one thing that i i don't remember the exact number i think it's, it's above 80 percent. i think it's 84 the which is the the cost the the healthcare cost uh the large percentage of above 80% is caused by diseases that can be either cured or slowed down by behavior change. <laughs> so if you think about it, we are a little bit as human beings, our own worst enemies. Uh, so if that large of a percentage of cost of the most expensive healthcare system in the world, measured in trillions, <laughs> can be significantly tweaked by changes in behavior health, It's worth doing, right? So it's almost like is there that world where you push about to the All all, everyone is like meditating once a day, is eating healthy, is growing their own garden, (laughs) is you know really nice to others in kind. And then you say, okay, well, mental health would be better. Well, blood pressure would be lower. Uh, Diabetes would be you know way less prevalent. (laughs) Like and then and that's where a lot of the costs come you know, cardiovascular, diabetes, health. then you have mental health, things like that. So it's really, really interesting. The power of behavior change is just immense and how to do it, right? Well, if we can, if we have technologies to create digital addiction to social media or any other kind of apps, why not use the same tools that kind of are dopamine triggering tools to get someone addicted to, to health, to get someone addicted to positive habits? right? So that's really the, the co- one of the core ideas, right? So if that's possible, that will be a way better world and way better patient outcomes and way less costly for the system.
2: Yeah. And if I can just add to that, you know, digital therapeutics is about fueling and driving patient autonomy so they can take accountability and control for their own health. And this is really what it's about, right? It's about reducing the pressure on the healthcare system. It's about decentralizing and pushing out healthcare out to the edge um, so that the healthcare professionals can really focus, you know, their efforts and their time on the important things.
1: Yeah. And if I may add to that, because I think you touched upon a a big trend, right? Because at the end of the day, a lot of the things have to come together, at the, the confluence of factors, like I think Warren Buffett called it Lollapalooza effect. And this Lollapalooza is, as you said, empowered patients, right? So patient that takes Care of their health or plays a more active role, being more educated and more empowered. Now, another trend is smartphone broadband, so and access to, to information. Another trend that I lately see is more and more doctors educating patients on YouTube. You see someone in white coat, okay, now you get more trusted information from somewhere. And then another trend is, you know, costs that are continue to rise, like people live longer. And chronic diseases are on the right. So when you put all these factors together, you're like, okay, there has to be some solution that is different, that is disruptive, that is behavior change, that's going to lead to something better. Now, where we stand today—that's also another question. Are digital therapeutics ready? Are they not ready? So, I've seen a lot of solutions that can prove that they can engage patients, because that's like great. <laughs> if, if that's what like digital addiction for positive behavior behavioral change for positive habits. Okay, engagement tick. <laughs> a green tick. the second one is well do we have studies to show the outcomes that these software things actually work okay now that patients engage great without that there is no outcome. so now that engaged does it work so we already have you know a number of digital therapeutics that has shown in trials that it works right they have shown but then they come okay so then there is another question okay who's going to pay for that so who's going to pay for that that question is getting you know better answers now with, especially after COVID, but but market access and and then business models and revenue revenue and then business models are going to be, I think, at the far front over the next five to 10 years. So that's going to be a really interesting discussion. But then it's really, we we're talking, is this is the market ready for this? Is it not ready? Where do we stand? That's at
0: least the lens I put it through. So the other sort of factor that comes at play and this is maybe more from the sleep perspective. It's a pretty noisy space in the wellness app area. And how do you, as a startup, differentiate? You know, the extra evidence building and engagement. You know, when you're closer to that line versus just pursuing more of a wellness uh, consumer-driven approach. You know, I think that's another interesting area. You know, consumer pay wellness versus going after you know the broader health. Evidence-based and um, you know a true digital therapeutic approach is, is another interesting
1: angle. I think behavioral health is a great example of that because you know you had two big players in meditation, right? The Headspace and Calm, right? Both reached valuation of half a billion dollar plus, like four or five years ago already, before COVID, before mental health became like a pandemic that it is today. Then you have. Some players like Happy and this is the company that, you know, when I was at Santa Fe, we signed the first uh, digital therapeutics deal with there. So they started as B2C, but then they moved into B2B solution after being three years in the market. That was 10 years ago. And they went towards anxiety and depression. So if you think about it on the wellness side, you have meditation apps, and a lot of users use them, especially during COVID, for anxiety and depression, <laughs> right? It's not like going from you would think that Headspace and Calm is going from good to great mentally, right? But they start to be used as, you know, going from really bad to starting to get really you know, better because, you know, that's available. But then it's really, I think both can work, to your point, because wellness can work. It helps large groups of people go, try to go from good to great. But then if you, if you focus on a bigger problem mental health, like being in a so-and-so mood versus being a general anxiety disorder, or moderate clinical depression. So now you have a bigger problem, bigger pain. Well, that solution was probably gonna cost more. It's gonna be focused on a smaller group of people, still in the millions, but smaller group of people. So it's lower volume, higher price. Whereas the apps, like meditation apps I mentioned, will be huge volume, you know, hundreds of millions of people, and then lower price. So I think both can really work because they address different problem and different severity within the mental health, high performance versus mental illness, right? That's just like a simplified version of that, but that's roughly how I think about it.
0: Yeah, we often say on our side, like sleep exists at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. If you can't sleep, it's a basic human need. You have to solve that problem, but it's also at the top in terms of that good to great exactly. And there's two very different customer segments you're going after. Yeah. Yeah.
3: All right, so I want to dig... more into the commercials now and understand like possible business models. Like how are people selling digital therapeutics right now and how we think this is going to change both that, as you said, over the next five to 10 years. I
1: think that, you know, digital therapeutics as a term was coined a little bit more than 10 years ago by Sean Duffy from Omada. They were one of the pioneers. Then there was a well doc who was in, in diabetes, uh, who actually were first prescription. Based, that was one of the revenue models that, that they pursued. Uh, and I think I've seen you know, many companies after that, and, and really many of them are not around today anymore because they haven't found a way to monetize and, and investors ran out of patience and they ran out of money. And so it, it's really, really difficult. I must say difficult question is going to be easier. Pioneers pay the price. Uh, there are few options. Uh, one option that is successful is a model, this non-prescription model where you go to uh, employers and payers, but mostly employers. And that's a model that you've seen Livongo, you've seen Omada, you know, 500 plus employers as customers usually work through HR department who as a way of offering benefits and wellness and prevention would pay for their employees because that means less day of work, and there's always a way to, to show that that works uh, if the product is good. So go to employers, large employers, and offer that as, as, a, as a benefit. So that model definitely works. Uh, it requires you know, a large sales force and large investment. And you know there's always a question whether cost of acquiring a customer would be lower or higher than lifetime value. It is a question. It's also kind competitive space, et cetera, et cetera. Another option, okay, so... CMS. There is a lot of you know lobbying and a lot of things happening for Medicare CMS. That's a path that is not easy and it's complex. And but if it works, it's going to pave the way for uh, digital therapeutics being used at a much larger scale and gaining recognition and adoption by doctors, right? Because then. Then it's a it's a very, you know, it's a very different conversation when you get it through your employer and then you get something recommended by your doctor, which is still the most trusted source of health information. I just read the trust index study like yesterday. Edelman just came out. You know, doctor, number one. So that is CMS. So one is non-prescription. There is a prescription path as well, more complex. We'll see how that lands. And there there is this other kind of pharma angle, but that really depends how how that. Uh, digital products fits with fit within within the pharma product. So there are ways in pre-prescription, post-prescription. There are some ways to even have it approved as a combo, which is drug plus device, right? Have it as a combo. So then it's not drug anymore. It's drug plus device is one product, right? And so there are regulatory pathways for that. 505-2B is called. Those are more like future looking. So we'll see. But um, uh, the two ways that I mentioned, whether it's... Um, you know, CMS, Medicare, and whether it's through employers, I see those are the two most common paths so far. Payers partially as well, but we'll see. So that has my view, but you know, uh,
0: we'll be, be curious to hear what others think as well. I mean, I not a whole lot to add there, Bozidar. I mean, definitely the the employer. As you say, it's sort of the non-prescription path. You know, to me, that's that evolution, even from the wellness into the true digital therapeutic. You're not going to get there without the evidence base, which is which is necessary. And I think that's where I was commenting, you know, some of the CMS angles, you know, it's not necessarily that clear. It's a long road. And I do think that's where some of this remote patient monitoring is kind of a almost a bit of a stopgap. Again, you're getting the doctors engaging and in some cases actually using using the digital therapeutic as a way to sort of monitor their patient's progress in terms of, you know, different therapy and, and prescriptions. So, you know, whole, I, I mean, like as you say, I think the, the pioneers there, it is it is a long road and that space is evolving on the remote patient monitoring. And, and you know, I think there's a, a lot of sort of kind of excitement in that space that that can be a path forward in, in the CMS space
3: now on to barriers for getting to market. A couple I, that come to my head. Uh, enabling physicians to administer something that maybe they haven't or are not used to administering. That's an example of a barrier. Do we have any others, and how can these be overcome?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, obviously there are... I mean, one of the fundamental things that we see when we talk to HCPs is there is a, a little bit of a cynicism and, and sometimes a, a reluctance to adopt and use these types of tools so i think ultimately one of the one of the key barriers is to you know drive willingness to adopt from the healthcare professional community one of the one of the ways that we've seen this potentially working is to actually start by going with a direct to consumer model where you can actually go for a uh, sort of a non-regulated sort of you know market entry solution and sell that directly to uh, patients uh, just you know download it through the app store and they can actually start using something. So for example, it could be a, you know, just a, a, you know, an application that's used to track your, I don't know, your diet, right. If you're a diabetes patient or something like that. And, and ultimately um, if you can sort of start to get these into the hands of the uh, hands of patients, they can start to see the value. Then obviously that's going to drive visibility as they go to have their consultations with the healthcare professionals, and increase awareness of the value that these types of products are bringing, and that's essentially what's going to create that pull. So that's that's one way of getting to the market, sort of just to see the value that it brings to the patient, and helping the, the healthcare professionals to also see how this can help them to to uh, to achieve better health outcomes.
0: I mean, in this sort of software space, like you say, you can you can tweak the product to improve that engagement and learn and personalize and individualize yet you've got this true digital therapeutic and getting into the the you know the payer you know reimbursement side there's substantial evidence required for effectiveness and so there is a little bit of that trade-off where you 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 lose some of that flexibility to adapt the product possibly depending on how you know depends on the indication you're going after in order to build that evidence whereas like you said chris on the direct to consumer wellness side, you have that more of that flexibility. So you know again, that that like Bozador described it well, it's a really high hurdle to get into that reimbursement space. And, and so I think that's that's definitely a barrier.
1: It's going to be really interesting. I mean I think both models can work out. One is slower, slower but more protected, like prescription model. If you get in and yes, it's slower, more protected. The other one is faster where you don't need prescription. Go through employers less protected, and then there is this barrier of adoption and behavior by doctors and by patients. Because if you just think about, it, like we see the the ads for drugs, right? And I just read yesterday the study. You know, the number one uh, spender spent one drug five hundred million dollars for ads on DTC, the stuff that we see on TV mostly, right? And if you think about it, really the big vision, at least that that I've been thinking about digital therapeutics, is when you think of treatment that you think of digital options first, right? So when that becomes like a thought even, right? So just imagine, you know, a world very soon where some of the TV ads say, Hey, did you know that you can lower your anxiety or depression without taking any medicines, right? And having zero side effects, because that's one of the beauty with digital therapeutics. You have literally zero side effects. (laughs) So, and so, Imagine an advertisement saying that as opposed to if you use this drug, you can da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's da, 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 da. <laughs> just like two minutes of, of of that. So, and that's a very provocative thought. That thought is right now not at the top of mind of patients or doctors, right? Mm-hmm. So, when you say, for example, I, I gave an example of Happy Health, so I struggled how to share that internally because when you think of anxiety depression, this is before COVID, where everyone starts to look for started to look for alternative solutions. You think before COVID, it's like you say to someone, hey, someone has depression, the first thing they think is therapist and antidepressants. That's the first thing they think about. So what if you know people first thing they think about, oh, there is this you know digital tool you use, has no side effects, and you try it and it's effective in 50% plus patients, of patients. So when you start to see on TV those ads, and then you start to see doctors, well, you know, we will see how the future plays out and whether there is a future in which when, as the same way that we see drugs uh, being shown on TV, these big commercials, we see a future where, hey, you have a disease X, did you know that there is a digital solution that can help you achieve X outcome without Y side effects, right? And so that becomes a first, first thought when we are sick that becomes the first thought for doctors when they have a sick patients in many of the chronic uh, diseases. I mean, I'll give you what I just one you know, most people don't know. So I went through medical school. So I was in Serbia, in Europe, and I, you know, I have many friends who are MDs. Same thing is in any country across the world. So you spend them, how much time is spent in the medical school learning about the impact of diet and exercise? Uh, almost a zero across the board. There's literally no exam on that.
2: If I can just add one more comment here with regard to a barrier, and I think it's a really important one. I think that we know that in digital therapeutics, one of the key sort of value propositions for the healthcare professional is is remote patient monitoring, the ability to, to monitor patients remotely. But ultimately, it's really important that, you know, doctors don't want to have to lean on a number of different platforms and systems to monitor various patients who have different conditions. They're simply not going to do it. It's going to be far too complex too, too complex for them. So what's really, really important here is the integration of, of the data into the EMRs. Because ultimately, uh, what the healthcare professional is going to do is they just want to have one place to go to access the data that's being harvested by the digital therapeutic. If they have to go to a number of different digital therapeutics, it's just not gonna it's just not gonna work it's too much it's too time consuming too complex too much hassle they'll walk away from it yeah
1: and, and Chris I remember there are also startups in that space but I think what you're saying can be a strong driver of behavior change for doctors because if the first kind of thing that pops up on the drop down menu when you say I have patient X with this code of the disease and the first thing that pops up have you prescribed this digital therapeutic or have you recommended this digital intervention that's going to start to build that behavior. Of uh, that being the first step. So I think that can be a very powerful way to deal with behavior change.
3: All right. And the final question I want to ask is what part of this whole world of digital therapeutics are you personally most excited about over the next five to 10 years? And we'll start with Patrick.
0: <laughs> I'm a little biased there, Tom. Like Bozadar was mentioning, how much time an MD takes around diet, you know, fitness, uh, sleep is exactly the same case except I think it's maybe one hour, <laughs> but there's definitely no exam on sleep either. And it, the awareness of the impact it has on health, all these chronic diseases is just, the, the. I mean, the evidence is irrefutable. And so obviously, we're excited about that. The problem is there's been no way to measure it objectively before. The, the current methodology is, is just archaic. And that's what we're bringing. That's what we're excited. You know, the mantra in business, you can only manage what you can measure. And I think that's our opportunity to actually objectively measure sleep quality, personalize it, which I think helps create that engagement because that is the ultimate piece is if you can't show your daytime activities impacting your sleep, which in turn impact your daytime function, you're never going to get that long-term sustained engagement. And so that's what we're excited about, you know, getting that awareness around sleep alongside health diet behavior. That's what I'm excited about.
1: Well, I mean, I can share a lot of asks the answers to this question but uh if you think about it in in the world that we live in right now and it's maybe a little bit philosophical answer but individual has almost no chances of being staying healthy it's like no chances you have to work so hard on yourself so much on yourself to create an opposing force versus this like gravity size like influence like forces that push you towards unhealthy food wherever you go. It's like I can't have to go supermarket. It's unhealthy habits, alcohol, uh, TV, news. So, so that whole environment where like an individual of 21st century is living in, it makes it almost impossible <laughs> to build healthy habits on a day-to-day manner, like, unless you're in this high-performance reading personal development books. So, <laughs> you know on this percentage of people. So, the question is, how to bring that to to masses? How to make positive habits, sexy and mainstream. And that's where I think long-term, you know, as like Dalai Lama says, if everyone would meditate, there would be no worse, right? So, because, you know, when you meditate, you train your brain to go below that monkey mind that is always restless and ready to jump into and fight or flight, you go into that base layer, which is always calm and loving and compassionate. So if you think about uh, positive behavioral change and making... Positive behaviors, diet, exercise, sleep, mental health—making that sexy uh, at scale—I think where the which, of course, will have impact on health and outcomes and costs and all that. That's where I see really the biggest, biggest opportunity. So it gives a chance to this individual <laughs> to actually be
2: in control. I think, Bosudai, you took the words right out of my mouth because you know I have, as a designer by training, I have some some biases here as well, and I think that. What really excites me here is is that opportunity to make positive habits sexy, right? I think that, you know, there's a term that I hear frequently that, you know, healthcare is increasingly becoming consumerized. And we're seeing that within digital therapeutics that, you know, there's very little difference between a digital therapeutic application and a direct-to-consumer lifestyle application. And I think that as designers, we can borrow experiences from other industries, whether that's a beautiful driving experience in a in a premium car, or a fantastic experience um, in within within a smart home, or something like that. How can we pull those beautiful human experiences, and how can we integrate them into these digital applications, which really really going to engage people and drive that that adherence and drive behavior change.
3: And I think we'll leave it at that. Making positive habits mainstream and. Sexy. So Patrick, Bozilar, Chris, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time to illuminate the world of digital therapeutics. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Shine, a podcast by Star. the question we're asking, is: what is a digital therapeutic and what are the new business models that they are enabling? The thing that really hit me in this episode was actually Chris's point where he was explaining that the real goal of the therapeutic is to enable patient autonomy, to enable a patient to be more responsible and be autonomous with their health, taking the onus almost away from the doctor and giving it to the patient as chris said spreading healthcare out to the edges so that i see as a real benefit and the driving force behind new business models driven by this technology so i hope we were able to illuminate the world of digital therapeutics for you i want to thank each of our guests bozidar chris and patrick and of course i want to thank you so much for listening